As you're seated, please now open the Word of God to Galatians chapter 2. And we will read together verses 15 through 21. Though if you have been here for a few weeks or a few years, you know that we're not going to finish 15 through 21 this morning. (laughs) But we'll read all of these verses, and uh, God will bless the reading of His Word. The Word of God inspired, God breathed out through Paul on the pages of Scripture says in Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. But through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, we praise you in the name of Jesus that our Savior Jesus Christ did die, but not for no purpose. Father, in his death we are saved. In his life we have new life. God, we pray that as we study your words, and God, we hear what you would say, Lord, I pray that it would become more clear to us, Father, that it would, it would make sense and that we would have the sense and understand what you have said so that we can apply what you've said to our hearts and minds so that Jesus will be glorified and exalted. In his name we pray, amen. We've been learning a lot about the gospel in this study of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2 so far, all we've gone through, but really why we can believe that this gospel is the true gospel, this one gospel that we stand on as we, as we sung together this morning, the only one that came from God, the only true gospel. We, we've talked about how it's a dramatic change in a person Uh, that God works in us when we receive and believe this gospel. It's long-lasting, this gospel is. It has withstood many challenges through many years. We saw the challenge in Jerusalem uh, and that question of whether Titus needed to be circumcised, but we understood that by extension the question was, does everyone who comes to faith in Jesus need to be circumcised? And then by extension, even greater than that, does everybody who come to Jesus have to start following all kinds of rules, regulations, laws, so that they can be saved? We saw that the gospel was true. It remained true even through that serious challenge. The truth of the gospel is only faith in Christ. No works are allowed. They're not part of our our salvation bringing it about to us, bringing, bringing our salvation is only by faith in Jesus. So we looked last week at verses 11 to 14. We saw another challenge against the gospel. This time it was Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jewish Christians, we remember, in Antioch, separating themselves from the other Christians who were not Jewish. 
And that was a problem because they were teaching by their actions, which we know speak louder than words, that you might be Christians, maybe you're Christians, maybe you're not, but if you are, we're better Christians because we follow these rules. We have these laws. We do these things and don't do those things. We have all the laws that we follow that make us holier than you, better than you. We saw that in verses 11 to 14, and we really focused more on how that was confronted and how that was handled in the church. But, but that's what Paul was telling us, even though on the surface, it was just a matter of where they were eating. That's what it, that's what it looked like. Because these were love feasts, they were purposefully set aside, though, as, as unity in the gospel for, for Christians to come together to have a feast together and, and celebrate our fellowship around the gospel. Is the change of the gospel really all that dramatic in a person's life? Is it really the same for all kinds of people? Jewish, Gentile, anyone else? Is it, is it just better than some people? Is, is that what it does? It just makes us better than some. It, it makes some Christians better. I mean, what is it that's about the gospel that was challenged here? Paul stood up in the middle of everybody and confronted Peter and the rest on what they were doing. You, you, you can't tell them they have to dress like you and act like you and talk like you and eat like you and, and be like you. That's not the gospel. Fellowship centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith in him, not following a bunch of rules, Right? The challenge, really, what we saw was, even though on the surface level, these were two different challenges, do you have to be circumcised? Can we eat with them as lower Christians? The challenge was the same. You're not walking parallel to the gospel, straightforwardly. They were preaching the gospel. Anybody can come. You know, anybody can come and, and believe in Jesus. You can have your, forgiven, your, your sins forgiven by faith in Jesus. But they were living as if that were not true. That's, that's not all there was to it. It was that bait and switch, right? Just come and be welcomed, and then we'll tell you the rest of the story. <laughs> we'll give you the rest of, here's all the rules that you have to live by. It was hypocritical. It was not the gospel. The, the truth of the gospel was at stake in both of these challenges. It, this one, uh, the first one was brought on by fear of man in the heart, fear of losing admiration from people, respect of Jewish people. They stood condemned. It was a big deal. It was, it was sinful. The gospel is constantly under attack by people ourselves even included, and all kinds of people. The gospel is not only challenged one time when a person either believes it or rejects it. The gospel is continually under attack in all of our lives, all of the time. And so we need to be ready. So we've seen these two serious challenges against the gospel, two separate occasions, and we've seen the same challenge just presented in two different ways, haven't we? Do you add works to the gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, no earning it, through faith alone, no working for it. In Jesus Christ alone, no replacing, no, no substituting, no adding to him. For the glory of God alone, not to me by earning it. Is that what this is all about? That is what is happening here. And all brothers and sisters, we need to understand that this is the prevailing issue in any kind of gospel that comes against the true gospel. Any challenge that comes against it from our own minds, from our flesh, or from anyone around us, all challenges come to, against the gospel with the necessity of works being added to faith for salvation. 
They either begin with it or they add the necessity of works. And the result is always the same. It's a different gospel. We've talked about before how that kind of gospel isn't really a gospel, good news at all. It's not good news, brothers and sisters, to find out that you have to work your way to heaven in any sense of the word, in any form, any way. Every challenge when you investigate it, every new idea that comes along, every, every challenge that comes either begins or ends with something being added to faith in Jesus Christ. It, challenges might look different. They might sound and feel different. They may seem like they make sense, but when you explore it, when you investigate, it always leads down the path of faith plus something, even when that's denied. So this is why it's so helpful for us to have these specific challenges in Galatians here that we're looking at in the scriptures. Because you might have been sitting back wondering like, why does it matter why some people 2,000 years ago weren't eating with other people? (laughs) Why is that relevant? Why do we have that in the eternal word of God? It's because every challenge will contain or consist of faith plus something. We need to be ready. We need to understand. We need to see that. We need to find out how to handle that. So we read verses 15 through 21. If you would, for one second, look back at verse 14. Verse 14 is where Paul confronts Peter. He says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all. Now, this is where you have quotation marks, right? In, in most of your translations, you have quotation marks. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And if you have the ESV Bible, you have quotation marks there ending what Paul said directly to Peter and in front of everybody, Peter and Barnabas and and all the rest of the Jews who had gone away. If you have the New, um, New International Version, NIV, if you have the New American Standard, if you have the New King James, those quotation marks don't end there. They continue all the way through the end of the verses we read this morning through verse 21. Now, the reason for that is that some people believe, many people believe, that verses 15 through 21 are all included in what Paul brought up to Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the people who were there. This, this whole thing was what he said to them. Many others believe that we have just the small quote in verse 14. Verses 15 to 21 is just where Paul ends the account of what happened there, and then he continues to explain to the Galatians what was important, what was relevant, why he confronted Peter and Barnabas and the rest. In either case, whichever one of those is right, it doesn't change what he's saying and what he's intending for the Galatians to understand. Whether he said those things to Peter and he's telling the Galatians about it, or whether he's just telling the Galatians about it, the reason is, the point is the same because the Galatians were falling for the same lies that Peter and Barnabas and the others had fallen for. You do not need to become Jewish to become Christian. You do not need, in fact, you cannot follow enough rules to become Christian. You can't do it. Salvation, specifically the forgiveness of sins, can never come about by your works. It can only come about through faith in Jesus Christ. So how were these people so successful in persuading Peter and even Barnabas and the rest of the Jews and then later the Galatians? How were they so successful in in messing them up? And getting them off track. Well, we don't have the exact arguments, but we can derive them from these verses here and and get at the the, the main arguments or the accusations against Paul and his message that are addressed here. So there are, I I found about four of them, about four accusations that they were making against Paul 
that convinced Peter and Barnabas and the rest to join in with, with falling away, getting off track, not losing their salvation, but getting off track with the gospel. The first one was that they were mixing God's chosen people with sinners, verses 15 and 16. You know, you got God's people, you got the world, and you're just mixing them all up like there's no difference. The second one was, you know, you're making Christ a servant or promoter of sin, verses 17 and 18. You you know, this Jesus who's supposed to save people, all he's doing is making everybody sinful. The third argument was, you know, you're teaching God's chosen people to just live in sin all the time. You know, you say salvation is by grace through faith. Well, that just means they can live however they want. You're taking away all the law and they just do whatever they want. So then finally, you're throwing away God's grace, verse 21. You're just, you're, you're, you're making a mess of this whole thing. Those were, as, as best as I can determine from the context here, the arguments that they had made against Paul's gospel, the true gospel that came from Jesus, it started to convince Peter and Barnabas, well, maybe, maybe you're right. I mean, we don't want to do that. I mean, if I was accused of these things, I'd have to take a step back. Am I doing that? <laughs> Those are some pretty terrible things to do. As Paul addresses the error of Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews and then the, the, the Galatians, um, this is a look in how they convinced them. You're not making any distinction between God's people. You're turning Christ into a promoter of sin. You're teaching God's people to reject his law and just live in sin. And you're throwing it all away in, in God's grace by doing this. So it would be helpful for us to understand the background of this, like how they can get at this kind of argument against the true gospel, because this is an attack that we're going to experience. These are arguments that we may come up against ourselves or by people in the world. It's going to be helpful because, as we know, Satan doesn't come at us uh, with unsophisticated arguments. He comes at us with scripture, doesn't he? Our enemy does not come at us and just say, hey, let's get away from the Bible. Let's just talk about this or that, and let's do something else instead. I mean, not immediately. Eventually, he gets around to that. But let's, let's start with the Scriptures. The, the false gospels that come against us start with the Word of God. So what, what is the background for these arguments? How could you ever get to these statements and convince people that you've got to follow the law? Well, God's people were supposed to be sanctified, separate, set apart, weren't they? There are many verses in the Old Testament that teach this. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5, is sort of typical of this. But the Lord himself, God, spoke to Moses, and he said, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. They had just come out of Egypt. He says, don't be like those people that were in Egypt. They were worshiping false gods where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. So you're not going to be like people that you came from. You're not going to be like the people that you're going to. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh, your God. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's what he says to his people. So God tells his people repeatedly, you're going to be separate. You're going to be set apart and different. Rather than follow the laws of all the people, follow God's laws. And they didn't decide that for themselves. God did that, right? They didn't say, hey, we think we should, we should be separate. Leviticus 20, 24, God makes it clear. I'm the one that sets you apart. 
Where Israel went wrong throughout their history was the application of that. The understanding and the application, this is what we can fall into as well. They misunderstood and misused that truth. They thought because of what God was doing, because of what they had from God and what they were because of God, that they were better than other people. They thought they were better. They thought they were more deserving of God's gifts, of his law, his promises, his truth. They thought because they were so obedient to God, he was going to give them the land and the blessings. But they forgot that the land and the blessings were given to Abraham long before there ever was God's laws and statutes written down in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, and farther on. They forgot Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 8, which came after their knowledge of God's laws. Okay, so before God's laws, God gave them the land through Abraham. After he gave the law, this is what he says. Do not say in your heart after Yahweh, your God has thrust them out before you. He's talking about the Canaanites. You know, when, when God removes the people from the land, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the upright of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God tells them right up front, it's not because you're better than anybody. It's not because you are better. It was because God promised it a long time before, and he's fulfilling his word. Deuteronomy 7, it said, it's not because you're greater in number than any other nation. In fact, he says, you were the fewest of all the nations on the world. God's teaching them there's not any reason that you can point to in yourself for God setting you apart other than what he did for his character as part of his plan for his glory. But they'd been gathering up their pride over, over generation after generation, and they said God chose us because we're special, because we're better. And they passed that down from generation to generation. Do you remember in the days of Samuel? Israel was just doing whatever they wanted. They, they followed their, their own hearts, their own minds, whatever their eyes saw that they wanted to do, they would do. Remember? God brought the Philistines in to, to get them back on track, to say, look, you, you've got to wake up here. The Philistines were oppressing them, and they were crying out to God, say, God, help us. And instead of them turning to God, they said, I know, let's get our good luck charm, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it along, and then we'll win. We'll beat this, these Philistines right? Because we're so special. We have the Ark of the Covenant. And they brought it out there. And what happened? The Philistines defeated Israel and took the Ark of the Covenant. God was saying, you're missing the point, Israel. Later on, it was returned. But the point was that they, didn't, they weren't just special and just better than everybody else. They didn't have good luck charms. The people followed along with the same error in Jeremiah 7. They were living in just resolute sin. No, we are not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. We're not going to listen to any of the prophets. We're going to do whatever we want, whenever we want. So God sent Jeremiah to them to call them to repentance instead of them trusting in their empty words. Because here's what they would say. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. They said, they would just say it over and over again. We've got God's temple. How could anything bad happen to us? We've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got the temple. We've got his laws. We're fine. See, too often, God's people misapplied God's truth of setting them apart for himself. They began to think, well, there's something in me that made me worthy of that. 
So opposed to all of those other people out there that God rejected, you know, I'm just better. There's something in me that, that's good. So to protect our special status, don't let anybody in. And because of our special status, we can do whatever we want. The separateness that God was calling for among his people was moral, it was ethical, it was spiritual, not physical. Yes, initially when God brought his people into the land, they drove out the people of the land, they destroyed the people, but it was because of their wickedness, as we read about in Deuteronomy 9, right? After they were finished, people were supposed to learn about the Lord from the people of Israel and come to him. They were holy to the Lord. They were separate and distinct, and people were supposed to find out and go, who is this God? In fact, that's how Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8. He says in 1 Kings 8, verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Why would God do that? In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, that's what was supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to just be sitting aside and saying, look how great and special and wonderful we are. All you people out there are just on your own and it's too bad for you. From the beginning of their formation, as they left Egypt, God told his people, you're supposed to be separate for me so that others will come and be separate for me. Leviticus 19, God says to his people, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. That's what God told his people. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God. So foreigners would hear and they would come and they'd be converted. There was a separation, a distinction from all other nations, but it was for the glory of God so that others would see and come. And it was God's grace for all of this to happen. Regarding that final argument that they, that they made, as we read in Deuteronomy 9, it wasn't because they earned any of it. It wasn't because they deserved it. It was God's grace that separated them, gave him his laws, his rules, his word, which is good. Have we thought about that? Like God's laws, his rules are good. We started out this study in Galatians and just reminded ourselves that it's not God's law that Paul is railing against here that we're talking about, that not by works of the law. It's not by works of the law. It's not because God's law is terrible. It's God's grace to give us his law. Psalm 119 is just filled with praises for God's law. Verse 97, the, the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. The psalmist says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, he said, for I keep your precepts. He goes on, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste. The laws of God, the word of God, they're sweet, sweeter than honey to my mouth, he says. Israel was the only nation that had God's laws. They were the ones that God gave his word to and his laws to, and it came by his grace. So it's not the, the law of God that's evil and bad and that we're railing against. 
as we're going to see and as we study, it's the works of the law that we try to do. Now, that's the background for those arguments, for, for what they're accusing God's people of. You're, you're, you're separate from the other nations. You need to keep it that way. You know, God's son would never come and promote sin like what you're talking about and remove all of God's laws so we just live in continual sin. God's laws came by his grace, okay? So, so these arguments are all pointing to one premise. Here's what they're saying. You're bringing foreigners, Gentiles to the Lord through, through Jesus to God. That's good. But you're ignoring the special place of Israel, God's people. For these people to be God's chosen people and to be part of them, these Gentiles need to become Jewish religiously. They need to be converted to Judaism so they can become true Christians, they were saying. They're not good enough on their own when they come through Jesus, through faith. They have to convert and then live like Jews from now on with all the laws that we follow and all the statutes and all the the laws and rules that we observe. Until they do, they're not really saved. We can't have fellowship with them. They're not good enough. So in these verses, 15 through 21, Paul is carefully step-by-step destroying those arguments and that premise. So we're going to learn the answer to that. But before we do, let's consider how this challenge would present itself to us. Because most of us are not going to be tempted in that way. You've got to become Jewish before you can become Christian. Right? We're, most of us are not going to be tempted in that way. Now, some people are. Still today, many people are tempted that way. You know, well, we're, we're not becoming Jewish. We're just connecting with the roots of our faith. Right? It's worship practices like feasts and traditions and these things that happen on Saturday, the Sabbath. And, and so, you know, just as the Jews did, that's what we're going to start doing. We're going to change everything about what it means to be Christian and worship on the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave because we're just following the, the traditions and the rules that were before us that were put in place for good reason. It's still alive and well today. But most of us will not be tempted that way. So most of us will be tempted with other ideas. Like, I can't be saved. I've got to clean myself up. I, gotta, I, gotta, you know, I, I can't even go into the church. I'll probably be struck dead by lightning if I were to show up in church. Have you heard that before? I've heard that from people. You can't do anything or say anything to make it so God will save you. You can't clean yourself up. That's what the gospel is telling us. If you've ever thought that before, you've bought into the same types of lies that you've got to clean yourself. You've got to be good enough to get saved. You've got to be good enough to hear the gospel. And I've heard this from people. You know, well, I've just done too much bad stuff. Too many bad things. I can't be saved. God can't forgive me. Or reverse that. If you've ever thought about somebody else, well, that person's too far gone. <laughs> that person could never be saved. You're buying into the same lie. That person's not good enough to hear or believe the gospel. It'd be too hard for that guy to get saved. <laughs> I, I have to confess, I've thought that before. Looking at somebody and saying, well, that, that, that person's far off. Or maybe we've thought the reverse of that. We, we've thought the, op, the other side of that. You know, my friend, he's such a good guy. He's really nice. He understands the values and morals. You know, he's close to being saved. Yeah, he's farther along and closer to being saved. That guy over there, though, no, there's no way. He's drinking Bud Light. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> we, when we categorize people by levels of sin, you know, we, well, they're closer because they're better people. Well, they're farther away because, you know, look how awful they are. Here's another common way we fall into this lie. When you hear about a terrible tragedy, some evil that a person has done, 
that they've committed, a mass shooting, you know, murder, racism. You see gross immorality maybe in somebody, you know, somebody that's abusing people or child predators. You see, or, you know, somebody that, that's just gone off the deep end in some kind of ideology, transgender, or some kind of thing. You just think to yourself, you know, when you hear any, th- any of that, you see some of that, you say, you know, how can that person do that? How could that person be like that? And you search for answers and you come up with like, oh, they just must be crazy. They must be insane. They just must have mental problems. They had mommy and daddy issues. You know, all of the answers that people come up with, the Twinkie defense, I mean, whatever comes along, what we're doing is setting up a standard of behavior between them and other sinners. And we're saying they can't be reached by the gospel. They've got other problems that have to be solved first. The answer is not their sin. (laughs) It's some other thing. No, the, the answer, the problem is their sin. The same sin that you and I have in our hearts, the same kind of human heart that's marred, stained, killed by sin that makes us want to rebel against God. It's the same heart and the solution is the same, the gospel. Another way that we buy into this lie of works and salvation is, well, I, you know, I would be friends with that family but they, they let their kids watch the wrong kind of movies. <laughs> they, they let their kids go to public school. You know, we can't have fellow, we can't be friends with them. I can't be friends with that family. They're too strict. <laughs> they, they don't let their kids do anything. <laughs> we can't have friends like that. So those are, those are some of the ways that we buy into this. Well, there's, there's the gospel plus works, plus something that you add in with faith. Let's step inside our own minds for just a minute because this happens so often for us Christians. Am I really saved? I mean, did I, did I really get saved when I prayed? Maybe, maybe when I prayed, I wasn't sincere enough. Maybe I, maybe I didn't believe like I'm supposed to. You know, I mean, I, I thought I did, but I, I look at my life, I still mess up, I still sin sometimes, and it's just, you know, maybe it didn't take Maybe I, maybe I need to do it again. You know, I've got I've to try again. I've got to get saved. But do you hear all the I's and me's and my's in those statements? It's all centered on what I did or what I need to do to be saved. Because we're adding anything else plus faith that God gives. My salvation in my eyes hinges on whether I did enough, whether I said enough, whether, whether I did it right so that I could be saved instead of on the complete, finished, full work of Jesus and the faith that he gives so that we can believe. In all of these cases, in all of those things that we've talked about and many, many more ways, what we're doing is we're stumbling over adding works to our salvation. We've set up a standard of activity or deeds or words. There's something else that a person has to meet or be or do in order to be accepted by God and be saved. Those people can't be saved until they become like us. I may not be saved because I'm not enough like them. Do you see what it looks like? You see how it can sneak into our minds, our hearts, our own thinking. And it's not a small thing, is it? It's fundamental to the gospel that this understanding is correct and that it's proper because it happens 100% more often than we might think. The effects can be wrong judgment against other people. It can be division between Christians. It can be not sharing the gospel with somebody because they're just too far gone. We can be doubting our own salvation. Many, many more effects of this that work their way out in our minds, in our hearts, in our thinking, and around other people. It's devastating to ourselves and to others. 
But it really shouldn't be a mystery <laughs> that we fall into this trap. It really shouldn't be this surprising that we, fall, we can and often do fall into this kind of thinking. We're trained to think this way. I mean, everything in the whole world is set up to measure us against a standard or, or compare us against a standard. Do you measure up? It's the language of the world. It's, it's our works. I mean, what else do you have? People can't see our hearts and minds. They have to watch us. They have to listen to us. When you're growing up as a baby, you're measured up against a growth chart, right? Are you heavy enough? Are you long enough? Is your head big enough? I mean, all of those things that, that we, we put these babies up against this, these standards, right? They get a, a little bit... Older, you know, are you meeting the milestones? Can you sit up? Can you play with toys? Are you whacking them against people or things, right? <laughs> I mean, these are all the ways that babies and children grow. When you get a little older, you're in school, you're graded on everything. Did you do the assignment? How did you do? What was your handwriting like? What's your behavior like? Are you measuring up? Are you meeting the standard, right? Do you get to move on to the next grade or are you going to be held back? People around you, are you a good friend? Do you do nice things for people so they'll be nice to you? Do you do nice things even if nobody knows about it because hopefully that good thing will come back around to me in some kind of karma idea? You know, do you measure up as a friend? We have all kinds of quizzes and tests in, in magazines and in media. You know, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is how to measure up. This is, what it, this is how to do it, right? When you go to work, are you going to get to keep your job? Or are you going to get fired? Are you going to get a raise? And it's how is it measured? Your performance. How are you doing? Do you measure up? When you cook a meal at home, you've gone to work all day long, you come home, you cook a meal, and what's everybody doing around the table but evaluating your meal, right? Is, was it on time? Is it still hot? Does it taste good? You know, is, is it crunchy where it's supposed to be and chewy where it's supposed to be? And I mean, is it good enough, right? People are... Just, around the table are just evaluating what you've done. When you buy the food that you're going to buy to make in that meal, you're evaluating that food. Is this good enough? Is that working? Is that going to be right? Now, I want to make sure that I'm clear. I'm not saying any of that's bad, okay? That it's good to discriminate on things like those, okay? Not being discriminatory on things that are ridiculous, <laughs> differences in people that we don't have any control over. Those are, those are terrible, discriminatory things. But you shouldn't spend your hard-earned money on rotten food, right? You should discriminate between good food and rotten food. We should be watching our children to make sure that, that they're growing, that they're flourishing, that they're learning. You shouldn't be lazy at work and expect to be given a raise, right? I mean, th those are all good things, right? But the point is that everything around us all the time is constantly being measured. It's being evaluated on, is it good enough? Is it measuring up? Have we done it right? Are we good enough? Are we performing well enough? Since that's the case, loved ones, why would we not struggle with this idea of God's grace to us that comes without our works, without us measuring up? Why would we not stumble over God's grace in Jesus? We, of course we're going to try to add works to salvation. That's how we're wired in this world. From the world's point of view, it's only an immense amount of arrogance to think God saw something in you, so he saved you over somebody else, right? I mean, what's the question that comes to mind? What makes you so great? Why are you so good? Why did God save you? 
it wasn't our greatness. There there is not something in me. We're going to make sure that we're not making the same mistake that Israel was making. It's not because we're better than other people. It's not because I was smarter because of my intelligence, because of how good I was. It wasn't anything about me that God saw in me, so he decided to save me. You know, like he's the team captain. He's evaluating. I want you on my team. I don't want you on my team, you know, so that we're not picked or we're picked last or something. He's never done that. Oh, you're born Jewish? Oh, you can become a Christian. I'll accept you. But you? No, reject it. Right? God's never done that. Oh, you're morally upright more than, more than other people? You're more truthful than the guy next door? Sure, come on in. I like you. I approve of you. You can be saved. <laughs> That's not how God operates. That's not how the gospel works. Oh, you did that? You said that? Sorry, you're out. God's salvation is never conditionally offered based on a person's ancestry or DNA or heritage or ethnicity or morality, saying the right words or anything else we can come up with. Anything else that we invent or stumble over, God is not stopped by a person's sins or their comparative morality. It doesn't cause him to act. It doesn't prevent him from acting to save a human being from their sins. But we can and we do still stumble over all this. The apostle Peter stumbled over it. Barnabas stumbled over it. All of the Jews who were with them, who believed in Jesus, stumbled. Why would we think that we never have a problem with this? We've, that we've got it figured out so easily. So that's what Paul is addressing in these verses. Verses 15 to 21. These arguments, this premise, God can't save you unless you fill in the blank. As a Christian, you've got to follow these rules, these laws, right? To continue to be saved, to grow as a Christian, to have fellowship with other Christians, you've got to fill in the blank, whatever it is. So we've just looked at how we fall into those same traps. We've, we've looked at part of why we've fallen to those traps. Let's look at how to fix it. That's what Paul's showing us. That's what Paul's going to be teaching us here. Fix our wrong thinking because, again, it's crucial enough because that always leads to a false gospel, when we think the wrong way. So learn and remember number one in your notes. And aren't you glad there's not a number two? (laughs) Not yet. There will be Lord willing next week, but number one, we need to fight these wrong ways of thinking. We need to fight the wrong thoughts and feelings of, of putting up these barriers and these actions and these rules and laws, because number one, although everyone is sinful, everyone is sinful. That's what goes in that first blank. Anyone can be justified. We'll talk about what that word means. Anyone can be justified, but only through faith. Only through faith. This is verses 15 and 16. We talked about last week what Jewish parents taught their children when they were young. Remember about what what they told them about us Gentiles, those of us who are not Jewish by birth, Separate yourself from them. Don't eat with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't be business associates. They are, they are contaminated, despicable, and abominable, they would teach them. God's only gracious to Israelites. All other nations, he's going to terrify. If a man repents, God accepts him. But that only applies to Israel. This is what they would teach to one another. Again, through the generation after generation. 
you know, we as Jews might sin, but God gave us the sacrificial system. Those Gentiles, all they do is sin, and God didn't even give them the sacrificial system. They're just dogs. And not the dogs that we think of today, like with the, with the glowing coats because of the healthy food that they have and the wagging tail and having fun. These were the, the, the flea-bitten, mangy, mongrel, mutt things that used to run around and eat all of the dead, decaying things all over the ground. I mean, that's the kind of, when they said dogs, that's what they thought of, not, the, not our pets that we have today. But that's the sarcastic way that Paul starts here in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. All those dogs out there. We're not those awful, terrible people. Now, if, if he had said this directly to Peter and to everybody else, and it was during one of those love feasts, and they've got food in their mouths and they're listening, that's the part where they would kind of stop and droop and look down and just put the food down like, oh. Of course, we're not like them, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 16, he says, yet we know. You know, that, that was the old way of thinking. That was the old way of thinking that we're so good and everybody else is so bad. That was that prideful religious system of Judaism that taught that. But now we know this. We are intimately aware of and we have not forgotten it. We know all of the ins and outs, everything we can to understand and believe it. Even still now, we're acutely aware of this fact because this is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. We know that you can't be saved by works that we can't do something to be good enough, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The teaching of the gospel is that everyone is in need of being justified. Everyone stands before God as a sinner. There's no one who can stand before God and say, God, look at all the things that I've done. I can be justified. I can be good enough. I've cleaned myself up. The phrase works of the law shows up three times in that one verse. As, as you tried to memorize it, you probably stumbled over this. Like, why is it so repetitive? And why does it, why does it say this here and not that there? And it just, it, it can be a little bit difficult to memorize. But that's why we took the time to memorize this verse. It's a central piece. It's, it's the central piece of the gospel that we need to know and keep on knowing the verb here is, is the perfect participle. We learned it and we know it. We still know it and it has lasting effects. Through today, we know a person who is justified before God was not justified by his works. Not because you said the right words, not because you prayed the right way, not because you signed a card, not because you cleaned yourself up because you came, not because you go to church or read the Bible, not because you watched movies or don't watch movies because you did drugs or never did drugs or whatever it is, whatever in the world we might fill in those blanks with, the blank is meant to be left blank. It's not because of anything, but because of Jesus. So we need to understand and know the truth. Everyone is sinful. None of us can make ourselves ready it includes any and every kind of person and any and every kind of excuse or reason for why or why not. We're all in the same place before God. The end of verse 16 is actually a rough quote from Psalm 143.2. And it's included here because it destroys the idea that Jewish people have always known we're better. We've just always been better than everybody else. This was the Jewish King David who said in Psalm 143.2, No one living is righteous before you, Yahweh, before you, Lord. David said that. 
It was David's son, King Solomon, who said in Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That doesn't exist. That's never existed. It doesn't happen. Save Jesus. One of the classic passages we turn to from the scriptures to, to help us understand where we all stand before God, that we're all sinful before him. One of the classic places we go is Romans chapter three, right? No one is righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. No one seeks God. All of those things that just, oh man, it just shreds us to pieces, right? I mean, if, you, if we want to be put right before God and his holiness, it just it rips us apart and just tells us we are. But none of that did Paul make up on his own. You say, well, I know because this is inspired scripture. Right, but the, the Holy Spirit didn't even inspire new scripture when Paul said all that. Those were all quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah. This is not new information. It shouldn't have been new information even for the Jewish people. It's a universal truth that all human beings are condemned before God. None of us is capable of earning salvation for our works. It doesn't work before God. It doesn't work here on earth. He said, well, what would that look like? I'm glad that you asked that question. Let's say you've got someone on trial for murder. This person killed somebody. And there's no question at all. The person said they did it, and it wasn't a coerced confession that, you know, that we know that can happen. There's DNA. There's fingerprints. There's a confession. There's video evidence, and it's not deep fake because that's another thing that's happening now, right? There's so much evidence, there wasn't even a defense at the trial. Yep, he did it. We're just hoping for mercy, <laughs> The judge turns to the person and says, what are you hoping for? Well, I'm hoping to be let off completely. I'm hoping to be acquitted, found not guilty. In fact, I want to be found innocent of committing that murder. What? (laughs) How could you possibly be found not guilty? And not only not guilty, but innocent. You did this. You went on trial. You were found guilty. You said you did it. I mean, on what grounds are you basing this hope? Well, you see, judge, I've never broken any other law. I've never even had a parking ticket. (laughs) I mean, don't my good works outweigh my one bad thing that I did? Oh, you're right. You're free to go. <laughs> is that how it would work? Is that, a, is that a good defense for breaking the law for murdering somebody? No, all the, goods in the, all the good deeds in the world can't make up for that, right? Every sin that we commit before the holy, eternal God is as serious as murder before God. In fact, it's more serious because when a person is murdered... It was a person made in God's image, and that brings the rightful execution of the one who murdered that image of God in a, in a human being. How much worse is it when we sin against God, not the image of God, but God himself? And the Bible tells us that every sin that we commit is against God. Every sin is a direct offense against him. It's as if we're saying to God, God, you say you're in charge. You say you're all-powerful, and you say you're holy and powerful and sovereign and wise but I'm stronger and wiser because I just said what you'd said not to do. I just did what you said don't do. What are you going to do? Every sin challenges God. If he allows that to happen, either he's lying, which makes him not God, or he's not powerful enough, he's not wise enough, he can't do anything about it, in which case he's not God. Because he's pure, because he's holy, no sin can be just let go of. No matter how small or big we think it is, every sin that comes against God must be punished. And because he's eternally sovereign, because he's eternally holy, every sin must be eternally punished. Otherwise, it just comes back and just continually confronts God and challenges God. That's the position that every one of us is in. 
We are sinners, sinful. We deserve his righteous, eternal wrath because of our sin. Because our sin made us into sinners, sinful people. And no one can do anything but add to that sin. Yeah, we can do nice things. We can do good things here on earth. But those good things don't add up to anything that can even remove one of our sins, let alone all of our sins before God. Isaiah 64, 6, even our righteousnesses are as a polluted garment. Parents, I encourage you. Adults, I, look, I encourage you to look that up and find out what kind of polluted garment he's talking about. It's a filthy garment. We won't talk about it in here this morning. Is there any hope at all, though? Yes, there is hope. It's found in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, but we're going to have to wait for next week to see more, to learn more about that. Because we've only gotten through halfway of the first point (laughs) of what we're looking at, verses 15 and 16, let alone the rest of these. But Lord willing, we'll be able to come together next week and, and continue to learn and study and grow and be encouraged by Jesus. Father God, I pray that for each person in here that there would be just a recognition, Lord, first of coming to that place before your holiness and before your eternal purity and perfection and goodness, God, so that we see the truth about ourselves that we are in need of forgiveness of our sins and that we are in need of forgiveness because we are sinners. God, it's a, it's a terrible place to be, Lord. It's an offensive thing to think about ourselves, that there's nothing good in us. God, there's nothing that would make us worthy of you saving us. God, that, that hurts our pride. God, I pray that you would hurt our pride, that you would bring us to that place of, of knowing, of, of needing your grace your forgiveness. God, you give that to us freely in Jesus. Lord, I pray that for every one of us in here, for every one of those watching, listening later on online. Father, you are so good and you are so perfect and you're so full of justice. God, it would be right to send us all into that place of hell, your eternal punishment for our sins. And yet, God, you're so full of grace and mercy. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you, Lord, that you have not set a bar high that we can't reach. Lord, that you've not set a bar that we have to try to reach before we can be saved. God, we've already fallen short and missed that bar. But Jesus, Jesus did that for us. God, I pray that that message would be echoing through our minds and our hearts today, tomorrow, the next day, throughout the week, Father that that message would be, would be encouraging to us, Lord. It would be lifting us up and looking forward to his return. And God, that we'd see those around us who need to hear that message. Father, whether they reject it or accept it, God, that's not up to us. Lord, help us to be faithful with that message. Lord, help us to be faithful to remember and to live that truth because of our Savior, because of his glory, because of his great name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.